Hello, and welcome to the Being Well podcast. My name is Forrest Hansen. Today's episode is closely tied to the theme of meeting our needs that we explored last week. We all have three fundamental needs for safety, satisfaction, and connection. Life challenges those needs all the time. And much of being resilient is learning how to deal with those challenges and meet our needs in healthy rather than unhealthy ways. So that's essentially what we're going to be exploring today. What can we do when one of those needs is challenged? How can we respond to those challenges effectively rather than reacting to them instinctively? So to help us do that, I'm joined today, as always, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Dad, how are you doing? I'm really good. So you have in your work this distinction between responding and reacting. What do you mean by those two words, and what's the difference between them? Yeah, the question is, when we're faced with a challenge to, let's say, our safety, somebody's Mm -hmm. threatening to us, or let's say we're faced with a challenge to satisfaction, maybe there's been something frustrating or that's been blocking us from meeting our goals, Mm -hmm. or maybe we're faced with a challenge for a connection. Let's say another person has been snippy or snarky or dismissive. Mm -hmm. Sure. Then what? And that's the key question. Mother Nature has essentially endowed us with two fundamentally different ways of handling these kind of challenges to our needs. In the first way, which is kind of the classic fight-flight-freeze way, mm-hmm. we feel a deficit in inside ourselves or a sense of disturbance, something missing, something wrong, related to those needs. And on the basis of that, then the body fires up into the stress response uh, mode in which it either flees from or fights with challenge or freezes in the face of it, to simplify. And that's a way that works in nature, but it has a lot of collateral damage. It has a lot of costs. It feels bad to go into that mode, which I call the reactive mode or the red zone. And um, besides feeling bad, it creates a lot of wear and tear on our our bodies, including uh, affecting long-term, literally the telomeres on the ends of our chromosomes Mm -hmm. uh, and thus making us more exposed to age-related illnesses. And then last going into the red zone, jacks us up in our relationships and tends to create a lot of conflicts, including vicious cycle of conflicts. Go the other way. If you can meet the challenge, somehow feeling already full inside, meeting the challenge, let's say for safety or satisfaction or connection, feeling an enoughness inside already of what we call resilient well-being, uh, calm strength as you face a danger or a sense of contentment already, as you face something frustrating, or a sense of feeling secure inside and having self-worth, and that some people at least love you, at least your dog loves you, as you face (laughs) a challenge to connection. So if you have that inside yourself, then you don't feel so overwhelmed. So can you give a concrete example of responding to something rather than reacting to it? In real life, what do those two things look like? Yeah, two examples really come to my mind. Mm -hmm. First is from my experience rock climbing, and you know I've done a lot of that, uh, not so much anymore, but anyway. Uh, and I, I could think about so many situations I was in that were objectively very hazardous. Mm. I was hundreds of feet up, held by a tiny little rope that yeah. was like 11 millimeters long. I was you know, holding onto edges that were the width of a pencil or smaller. And also, I was having the time of my life. Mm. I was really happy. And so I was facing an object of hazard But inside myself, I felt confident. I knew what I was doing. Mm -hmm. Maybe there was some anxiety around the edges. It's okay to have anxiety. You can still be in the green zone. But I wasn't overwhelmed by it. 
you were responding to a challenging situation from a place of sufficiency, basically. That's right. There was a sufficiency of competence inside myself. Mm-hmm. There was a, suffici- a sufficiency of vitality. I also felt supported by my friend who was down below me, let's mm-hmm. say, holding yeah. a rope. I had a sufficiency of knowledge. I basically knew where I was. I had a map in my mind of what the route entailed. Yeah, I could handle it. So if that's responding to a challenge, what would reacting to a challenge Reacting be? would be, and I've experienced that as well while rock climbing <laughs> and in other situations that are less exotic, where you're just overwhelmed, mm. you're dealing with it, but your heart is pounding, you're feeling really upset, you know, you're, there's a feeling of dread in your belly, mm-hmm. um, you just, you're, you're outmatched and you feel that way inside yourself. Just speaking from my own experience, I've done a tiny little bit of rock climbing, and I've definitely encountered that where I felt, I knew in my mind that I was objectively safe, mm. but my body just kind of stopped working Yeah, and you just freeze and you just kind of cling to the rock face in front of you. So yeah. you can see how there's a situation or someone could see how there's a situation where I felt objectively safe, Yeah, but my body responded like I was unsafe. Yeah. Whereas you were in a situation maybe that was objectively a little bit hairy, a little bit unsafe, but you felt safe inside. So yeah. that's the difference. It's about that internal experience. Yeah, you feel resourced inside. And I also think mm-hmm. about it uh, interpersonally. For yeah. example, I've had moments where people were disrespectful or mm-hmm. dismissive or mean or rejecting. Sure, normal and, human stuff. Yeah, yeah, normal things. And I would not like it. Mm-hmm. I would feel it. I wouldn't prefer it, but it did not pierce me to my core. Mm. It did not disrupt me or hijack me or invade me in the core of my being. On the other hand, I've been in situations where somebody said something or did something and it really got under my skin. Mm. And I spent the next 12 or hours or days sort of brooding about yeah. it. And that uh, the latter would be what I think of as the re- the red zone, the reactive mode. Okay. Just to finish, there's no uh, bright, shining light or line, mm-hmm. really, between these two modes, but we all know kind of the difference. The distinction's fuzzy, yeah. but clear. Yeah. yeah, we know the difference between calm coping or a kind of confident coping, mm-hmm. uh, even if we're revved up a bit to deal mm-hmm. with something. And when we're upset, we're angry, we're rattled, we're frozen... Yeah, to give a little bit of context, earlier you mentioned these two modes as being Mother Nature's gift to us. Yeah. You know, the green zone of the brain, the red zone of the brain, responding versus reacting. So if it comes from, quote unquote, Mother Nature, biologically, how are those two modes oriented in the brain and where do they come from? That's a really great question. Mm -hmm. And what informs me a lot about this is a framework or a view in which I see people and non-human animals Mm -hmm. who have to cope, who have to adapt, who have to deal with changing conditions and meet their needs. So Mm -hmm. there's no getting away from our needs. There's no getting away from a world that, as Alan Watts put it, is wiggly. Things are continually (laughs) changing. The only question is, what's the basis on which you deal with Mm -hmm. these challenges to life? Mm -hmm. So in terms of the brain... The subcortex in particular has a lot of uh, well-developed systems for uh, managing immediate threats to safety Mm. or managing the pursuit of goals of various kinds, as well as in the subcortex and in the more recently evolved neocortex, the more social part of the brain, there are systems that can help us deal with relationship issues. The thing that happens in a person in the subcortex when they feel 
that there's a challenge that is hitting them in such a way that they don't feel like their needs are already sufficiently met as they mm. deal with the challenge. The amygdala and hippocampus work together to flag that as a threat. And if the amygdala, based on its history, reads that, oh, this is really a serious problem, mm -hmm. I'm simplifying a complex process, sure. it shoots a signal in two, in two directions. The amygdala signals what's called the sympathetic nervous system to fire up, mm -hmm. and the amygdala signals the hypothalamus to call for stress hormones. So we have this dual process, one mm. that runs through your nervous system, the other that runs through hormonal pathways. And the net of all that is that people get drawn into the red zone, the reactive mode, mm -hmm. very, very rapidly. And it can often take a second or two or more for the more recent prefrontal cortex to come online and kind of put things in perspective. Mm. So the immediate reaction, and that's where the two words come from, yeah. Our immediate reaction is from that red zone more often than from that green zone. Is that correct? Uh, it depends. If you feel sufficient, if your habit mm. is to react in that way. And sure. that's part of the problem because red zone experiences breed red zone reactions. Mm. So the more that we have these red zone experiences, the more that we relate to life from the red zone, that tends to release more cortisol, more of that stress hormone, which then sensitizes the amygdala, the alarm bell, and weakens parts of the brain that could calm it down. On the other hand, the takeaway is that if people help themselves have many green zone experiences of enough safety, enough satisfaction, and enough connection, in other words, broadly defined experiences of peace and contentment and love, and if they internalize these experiences again and again, they build up a core inside that meets the next moment with a sense of sufficiency and needs being met. So that in the next moment, a person can meet challenges from the green zone rather than feeling overwhelmed by them. If the green zone is loosely defined good mm -hmm. and the red zone is loosely defined bad, why do we have a red zone at all? Like where oh, does yeah. that come from? Why, why, why do we have a reactive system if it's so stressful and painful for us? Yeah, so both are, both are good, neither is bad. Mm. Uh, there's a place for going into the red zone. Even if you're really working on inner peace, as I am these days, <laughs> you know, the house starts to burn down or you're afraid it might yeah. or you're in a weird situation in a dark alley. Okay, fire up into the mm -hmm. red zone. And Mother Nature evolved that. But interesting, in the 600 million year evolution of the nervous system, mm -hmm. the green zone came first. Hmm, really? Yeah. If you think about worms, okay, <laughs> jellyfish, sure. creatures with very, very simple- They're just kind of chilling. They're, they're kind of chilling. They're mm -hmm. sort of squirming around and they don't tend to react very quickly to things. <laughs> okay. We kind of think about it. It's later with uh, especially vertebrate evolution, fish, and then crawling on the land, the amphibians, and then the reptiles. Mm -hmm. and then They the had to run from predators. Yeah, and, yeah. that's right. The, the red zone, as it were, and related to it, the evolution of the sympathetic wing of the nervous system- tended to come in around 200 or so million years ago, 200, 300 million years ago. The point is that the red zone is actually laid on top of the green zone, which particularly tends to rely on the parasympathetic wing of the nervous system. Hmm. Now, too much of the green zone in the sense of too much parasympathetic activation creates a freeze response, or in humans, a feeling of dissociation, spacing out, kind of losing your voice or feeling mm. immobilized. Okay. You know, it's, it's it's a very simple, primitive way to get off the battlefield. Would it be 
I'm not a psychologist. Would it be safe to refer to those as like depressive symptoms? Often depression goes with an overactivation of this withdrawal response. Withdrawal came first Mm. to regulate the heart and lungs so that animals can keep running for long periods of time is really a recent, fairly recent, in other words, the last couple hundred million years or so, development (laughs) and evolution. It's all relative. The takeaway for me is it's really useful to notice, if you can, be mindful. In other words, that's what we're kind of focused on here. Be mindful of what your immediate reaction is. Like, does it feel like, oh, this is going to be a big problem? Oh, yet again, I'm screwed. I'm let down yet again. Notice that. Understandable. Notice that. Alternately, notice if something comes at you that you don't really prefer. It's a challenge. But it also could be an opportunity, mm-hmm. some neat opportunity. And notice if inside yourself is a sense of confidence and capability and strength and enoughness as you face it. So what would push somebody towards responding in that second way rather than reacting in that first way? Great question. First, a kind of uh, slowing it down a little bit because mm-hmm. the reactive mode is very quick. As you mentioned, it kicks in first. Yeah, yeah. it kicks in first, and that's Mother Nature's plan. Jump mm-hmm. first, figure it out later. Sure. So, one, slow it down. Two, in the moment, call up the sense of the resources you have inside yourself to deal with the situation. Really make yourself pay attention to them, mm-hmm. foreground them in your awareness. Remind yourself, for example, hey, I've been through this kind of thing before. Mm. It sucks, but I can deal with it. Uh, Remind yourself that you're able to think about what to do. You can persist. You can be determined. Remind yourself you have lots of skills. You can reach out to other people. You have lots of ways to manage this. Also remind yourself of the resources around you. That second thing you can do, Mm -hmm. once you've slowed down a bit, will tend to mobilize or activate the felt sense of these really good resources. And then I think the third thing that I would really do is be careful about going into the red zone. In other words, be careful about acting out anxious thinking inside your own mind and just fueling it and firing up that rumination. Disengage from it. Don't just feed it. Also, be careful about getting into angry reactions with other people. Once you go into the red zone, it's hard to come out of it. So those would be my top three suggestions right off the top in the moment. Slow it down, call up the felt sense of resources, and then remind yourself that you can cope. Those are great tools for extracting yourself from that red zone once you realize that you've entered it. But I know for me personally, I'm sure for many other people, when you're in that reactive state, sometimes it's really hard to tell that you're in a reactive state yeah, at all, right? That's like, totally true. So how do we improve our identification of that process at all? Like, How do we improve that self-awareness? That's really a great question. That's where mindfulness training comes in. Mm-hmm. And also it helps to know what your triggers are. Yeah. It's kind of like if you're skiing and you know you've got a trick knee, you're careful when you're in moguls, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my case, if you know from your history, you're vulnerable to feelings of being rejected in groups or mm-hmm. being less than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, knowing that, it helps you filter your reactions, put in a kind of correction factor for your take on things. So that that helps. And I think another thing that really helps is to, inside yourself, recognize that uh, the red zone is costly to you. Mm-hmm. We tend to kind of indulge ourselves to go into that reactive mode. And it's really helpful to remind yourself, 
I did this as a dad. Remind yourself that going there is not good if you can possibly avoid it. Sure, but if there are so many costs to our red zone experiences, then why is it so easy for us to fall into them? Right. It is really interesting. There are these studies that will ping people randomly throughout the day and ask them to indicate on their smartphone if they're feeling emotionally positive in the moment or neutral or emotionally negative. Mm -hmm. And typically, most people report many more emotionally positive experiences over the day. Mm -hmm. So there's a quantity effect for green zone experiences, but there's a quality effect for reactive mode, red zone experiences Mm -hmm. of fear and anger, frustration, disappointment, hurt, resentment, and conflict with other people. That's because as our ancestors evolved, they needed to have both green zone and red zone experiences. But if you got knocked out of a green zone experience, you're going to probably have a chance to have another one in a moment, Mm -hmm. right? But if you don't uh, learn from uh, your red zone experience, you're in deep trouble. So it's once burned, twice shy. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so today we have what scientists call the negativity bias of the brain. It's one of the most robust findings about the brain that has really practical implications. And you can just think about it. Uh, You're uh, with a friend or you're in a relationship with somebody and 10 things happen in a day, Mm -hmm. right? Nine are good. Mm -hmm. One is bad. Yeah. Forrest, what's the one you tend to think Uh, about? You normally tend to ruminate about the negative one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we have a brain that does these five things by design. One, it scans for bad news, including inside your own body and inside your own mind. You kind of search inside your mind, say, for something you forgot to do or some issue. I think of it like um, when you have a cold sore in your mouth, your tongue keeps poking Mm, at it. mm -hmm. Like you, you look for bad news. And then second, the brain over focuses on that bad news. There's a term in positive emotion research, broaden and build. It's because when we feel happy or grateful or or loving, we broaden our perceptual field. Mm -hmm. But when we're mad or upset or scared or in physical pain, the tension narrows down to just that one tile in the mosaic of the mind that's flashing red. That's the second thing. The third thing that we naturally do is we overreact to the negative. For example, some of this great research in economics uh, from Daniel Kahneman that talks about loss aversion. It's this idea that uh, mm, people mm-hmm. react more intensely to a negative stimuli that's just as intense as a positive one. So you hate losing $100 more than you like gaining $100. Exactly right. Or you put people in an MRI and you play two sounds that are equally loud. Okay. Yeah, but one is sort of a lovely chime, like mm-hmm. a bell ringing. And the other is like a fire alarm going off sure. or a baby crying. And the brain just reacts more to the negative. Mm -hmm. And then fourth, that whole package of experience, the experience you're having is fast-tracked into memory. For example, we remember negative information about other people, like gossip or political attack ads, more than positive information. Mm -hmm. Or a single experience of helplessness tends to really affect us And it takes many times as many positive experiences of agency, efficacy, you're a hammer, not a nail, to unlearn that helplessness. So that's the fourth uh, natural feature of the negativity bias. And then the fifth natural feature I talked about a little earlier, through the stress hormone cortisol, 
upsetting, uh, stressful experiences today, including mild ones, release cortisol into the brain that sensitizes it to the negative and makes it a little bit less resilient. Mm. In a, and that creates a vicious cycle so that stressful, annoying, exasperating, frustrating experiences today make you a little more vulnerable to stress or upset tomorrow, which then releases even just a little more cortisol tomorrow, which makes you even more vulnerable the day after. To bottom line it, we've got a brain that's like Velcro for bad experiences, but Teflon for good ones. Yeah. One of my favorite metaphors of yours that was really helpful for me when I was a kid and growing up hmm. was this idea that all of your negative interactions with someone or around something were kind of like taking like a unlit match and throwing it into the corner of a house. Huh. So over time, those unlit matches would all build up and it would only take a relatively small spark to start a blaze that wow. burned the whole house down. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, that was a way of framing it that for my child self and for my adult self today was really very helpful oh. because it helps me kind of put my negative interactions with people into into a bigger context. Yeah. And particularly what you were referring to earlier with regards to being aware of your own sensitivities and how we talked about how do you know when you're reacting instead of responding. Yeah. I think that having those little whether it's an idiom or mm. it's a personal practice or whatever it is, those little elements of self-awareness, they're kind of helpful to come back to because they can sort of help us tap the brakes a little bit. Yeah. The thing is, if we fight the negative, you just that's more negative, mm. right? So the art is to be able to be with what you're feeling, be with it, with, in a sense, shock absorbers mm. inside mm -hmm. yourself. So it doesn't hijack you or overwhelm you or invade you fully. And the other takeaway is when you are having a negative experience, don't add fuel to it. Try not to identify with it. Try not to get glued to it or follow after it or ruminate repetitively about it. If your thoughts are useful and productive, okay, fine. If you're just running around the same track in hell, you're just digging it deeper yeah. each time you go around it. Sure. Yeah, and then the final takeaway for me is... Uh, tilt toward the positive to level the playing field. Lean into those experiences that are beneficial. They're not always enjoyable. Sometimes they're kind of neutral, like you realize a useful idea or you learn how to be more skillful with somebody. But when you are having an experience that's useful to you, lean into it, which kind of compensates for the ways in which Mother Nature, out of good intentions, which create, unfortunately, a lot of excess, needless suffering and conflict today, leaning toward beneficial experiences helps to level the playing field inside your own mind because Mother Nature is leaning toward negative experiences. Mm -hmm. For me, there's an amazing bottom line here. If you take in experiences of your needs being met, that builds up inner strengths inside that help you meet your needs, giving you more opportunities mm. to experience that your needs are met, which then in a positive cycle build up various strengths inside that help you be even more effective in meeting your needs. That's really good news. It means essentially that as people go through their day, it's really useful to look for opportunities to feel reasonably safe, rationally safe, to the extent that you are, uh, so that you can relax and settle, feeling protected, feeling calm, feeling capable. It's also great to look for those opportunities to experience that you're reasonably satisfied not perfect, but there's enough food. You accomplish some goals. 
you folded your laundry, you got made it to work, you finished that email. In that moment, your needs are being met Mm -hmm. and you have a chance to feel that. And then also, of course, many times a day, if you have a chance to feel connected enough, seen sufficiently, included enough, liked enough, loved enough, or being loving enough, Mm. when you have a chance to experience that, Again and again and again, register that. And you'll you'll feel something amazing in your own body when you do it. You'll feel a settling, a soothing, a calming, like a horse that's gotten uh, frightened yeah. and jumpy. Uh, we're like that horse. But like that horse, when we kind of lay our hands on the horse and calm it down and give it a carrot and let it know that it's safe, that mm-hmm. it's arrived back at the stable, there's a kind of settling back down inside ourselves. And repeated experiences of that are one of the most useful things a person can do for themselves. That's a really great transition because next week we're going to begin our next strength in our 12 strength series here with learning. We're closing mm. mindfulness this week and now yeah. we're getting into the um, the strength of learning. And that's where we're really going to dive into the how of that. Yeah. How do you take in those experiences? How do you work with that problematic material inside the brain? using the framework you've created of taking in the good. So to close, to kind of recap some of the material that we've discussed today, we began where we left off last week with the idea of these three fundamental needs and much of life coming down to how do you react to those needs? Do you respond to them from a place of sufficiency, fullness, calm, balance, all of those good strengths that we talk about? Or do you react to them because you feel shaken inside? You feel like something isn't there. Those two ways of dealing with our needs are our evolutionary heritage. In general, animals rested, they ate food, they hung out with other animals, but there were moments where they had to respond to some threat. Mm -hmm. And that's the reactive mode where the body really revs up. Mm. That reactive mode is really good for short periods of time, but it's really bad for long periods of time. From there, we talked about some ways that we can respond to challenges rather than react to them applying the brakes a little bit in the moment of feeling activated about something, being conscious of what your personal vulnerabilities might be. Mm. What are the things that tend to bother you a lot? What were the things that you just didn't get enough of growing up? Mm. And those can be real vulnerabilities for people that make them more likely to react to something rather than respond to it. Finally, we talked about the negativity bias, as you did right there towards the end, covering how that tends to push us more towards that reactive way of being rather than that responsive way of being, and how to counter the negativity bias, we really have to balance the scales inside our own mind and go out of our way to take in the many little good things that happen during the day so the brain doesn't attach itself to the few bad things that happened in a day. Is that about right? You bet. You got it. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us this week. If you like the podcast, please subscribe to it. It ensures that you'll receive it on a weekly basis, and it also helps other people find it who might be interested in this kind of material. Next week, as I mentioned before, we're going to be getting into the content related to learning, a very, very big topic. It's kind of the core of your work, and I know you're looking forward to it. Definitely. Learning is the superpower of superpowers, because it's the one that grows the rest of them.